Aubrey reinstated after an exceptionally brilliant cutting out expedition, and after his election to Parliament, and the frigate, as His Majesty's hired vessel surprise, not quite a full reinstatement for her, but near enough for present happiness. Her first task in this particular voyage had been to carry Aubrey and Maturin, who was an intelligence agent as well as a medical man, to the west coast of South America, there to frustrate French attempts at forming an alliance with the Peruvians and Chileans who led the movement for independence from Spain and to transfer their affections to England. Yet, since Spain was then at least nominally allied to Great Britain, the enterprise had to be carried out under the cover of privateering, of attacking United States South Sea whalers and merchantmen and any French vessels she might chance to meet in the East Pacific. This plan had been betrayed by a highly placed, a very highly placed, but as yet unidentified traitor in Whitehall, and it had had to be postponed. Aubrey and Maturin, going off on quite a different mission in the South China Sea, eventually keeping a discreet rendezvous with the surprise on the other side of the world, in about four degrees north and 127 degrees east at the mouth of the Salababu Passage, the frigate, in the meantime having been commanded by Tom Pullings, Jack's first lieutenant, and manned, of course, by her old privateering crew. Here they sent her more recent prizes away for Canton, under the escort of the Nutmeg of Consolation, the charming little post-ship lent to Captain Aubrey by the Lieutenant Governor of Java, and so proceeded to New South Wales, to Sydney Cove itself, where Jack hoped to have his stores renewed and several important repairs carried out against their eastward voyage to South America and beyond, and where Stephen Maturin hoped to see the natural wonders of the Antipodes, particularly Ornithorhynchus paradoxus, the duck-billed platypus. Unfortunately, the governor was away, and Jack's hopes were disappointed because of the ill will of the colonial officials, and the fulfilment of Stevens very nearly killed him, for the outraged platypus, seized in the midst of his courting display, plunged both poison spurs deep into the incautious arm. It was an unhappy visit to an unhappy, desolate land. But now... The odious penal shores had sunk in the west. Now the horizon ran clean round the sky, and Jack was in his old world again, aboard his own beloved ship. Stephen had recovered from his distressing state, immensely swollen, dumb, blind, and rigid, with extraordinary speed. The bluish, leaden colour of his face had returned to its usual pale yellow, and he could now be heard playing his cello in the cabin, a remarkably happy piece he had composed for the birth of his daughter. Jack smiled. He was very deeply attached to his friend. But after a couple of bars, he said, Why Stephen should be so pleased with a baby, I cannot tell. He was born to be a bachelor. No notion of domestic comforts, family life. Quite unsuited for marriage, above all for marriage with Diana. A dashing, brilliant creature, to be sure. A fine horsewoman and a capital hand at billiards and whist, but given to high play and something of a rake. 
quite often shows her wine. In any case, quite improper for Stephen. There's nothing to say to books. Much more concerned with breeding horses. Yet, between them, they've produced this baby. And a girl at that. The wake stretched away. As true as a taut line now. And after a while, he said, He longed for a daughter, I know, and it's very well that he should have one. But I wish she may not prove a platypus to him. And he might have added some considerations on marriage and the relations so often unsatisfactory between men and women, parents and children, had not Davidge's voice called out, Every rope and end, cutting the thread of his thought. Every rope and end. The cry was automatic, perfunctory and superfluous. For having put the ship about, with rather more conversation than was usual in a regular man of war, but even more neatly than in most, the surprises, in the nature of things, were rapidly coiling down the running, rigging, braces and bolands, just as they'd done thousands of times before. Yet without the cry, something would have been missing, some minute part of that naval ritual which did so uphold seagoing life. Seagoing life? None better, reflected Jack. And certainly at this point in time, he had something like the cream of it, with a good, tolerably well-found ship, for the returning governor had done all he could in the few days left, an excellent crew of former Royal Navy hands, privateersmen and smugglers, professional from clue to earring, with his course set for Easter Island, and many thousand miles of blue water sailing before him. Above all, there was his restoration to the list. And though the surprise was no longer in the full sense a king's ship, both her future as a yacht and his as a sea officer were as nearly assured as anything could be on such a fickle element. In all likelihood he would be offered a command as soon as he came home. Not a frigate, alas, since he was now so senior, but probably a ship of the line, possibly a small detached squadron as Commodore. In any event, a flag, being a matter of seniority and survival rather than merit, was not so very far distant. And the fact that he was Member of Parliament for Middleport, a rotten borough in the gift of his cousin Edward, meant that, independently of his deserts, this flag would almost certainly be hoisted at sea. For, rotten borough or not, a vote was a vote. This certain knowledge had been with him ever since the Gazette printed the words, Captain John Aubrey, Royal Navy, is restored to the list with his former rank and seniority, and is appointed to the Diane of 32 guns, filling his massive frame with a deep, abiding happiness. And now he had another, more immediate reason for joy, his friend having made this astonishing recovery. Then why am I so cursed snappish? he asked. Five bells. Little Reed, the midshipman of the watch, skipped aft to the rail, followed by the quartermaster with the log ship and reel. The log splashed down, the stray line ran gently astern. Turn, said the quartermaster in a hoarse, tobacco-chewing whisper, and Reed held the twenty-eight-second glass to his eye. Stop, he cried at last, clear and shrill, and the quartermaster wheezed, three, one and a half, mate. 
Reed gave his captain an arch look. But seeing his grim, closed expression, he walked forward and said to Davidge, Three knots, one and a half fathoms, sir, if you please, directing his voice aft and speaking rather loud. The wake span out. Rather faster now than Jack had foretold, hence the arch look. Crossing the morning and bloody-minded with it like an old and ill-conditioned man. It's discreditable in the last degree, he said. And his thoughts ran on. Profound attachment to Stephen Maturin didn't preclude profound dissatisfaction at times. Even lasting dissatisfaction. For a quick and efficient refitting of the ship, good relations with the colonial administration had been of the first importance. But in that very strongly anti-Irish and anti-Catholic atmosphere, Botany Bay had been filled with United Irishmen after the 97 Rising, the presence of Stephen, irascible, more or less Irish, and entirely Catholic, rendered them impossible. Or, to put it more fairly, not just his presence, but the fact that he had resented an insult after a government house dinner on his very first day in the penal colony, blood all over the bath stone steps. Jack had had to endure weeks of official obstruction and harassment, the vexatious searching the ship for convicts trying to escape, the stopping of our boats, the arrest of mildly drunken liberty men ashore. And it was only when the governor returned that Jack had been able to put a stop to all this by promising him that the surprise should carry no absconder from Port Jackson. Stephen, poor fellow, couldn't really be blamed for the misfortunes of his birth.